Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for spending the hour with me. And for a whole lot of you, you're letting me drive home from work with you. And I appreciate that very much. So speaking of work, let me ask you a couple of questions just between you and me. So in your job today, when you were making widgets on the assembly line, or you were serving people at the restaurant, or you were teaching those third graders, or you were working as an LPN in a clinic, did you stop and realize that what you were doing today had eternal significance? You can use a lifeline, call a friend, or talk among yourselves. Did you think, well, no, I mean, it's a job, and I thank God for my job, and I hope that I'm a witness on the in my job for the Lord, but uh, eternal significance, hey, I'm waiting tables. I'm making widgets. What in the world has eternal value in any of that? Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about this hour, and I think you're going to hear some challenging words that will redefine your job and look at it through a completely different set of lenses. We're going to talk with a man who's written the book, The Sacredness of Secular Work. Yeah, you always hear about people who are in full-time ministry, called to the mission field. Those are the people that are doing work for the kingdom. Those are the people that matter. They're in full-time Christian service. Me, I'm a waitress. That There's no way in the world that that has any eternal significance. Well, let me tell you the subtitle of this book. It's not only called The Sacredness of Secular Work, but it tells us there are four ways your job matters for eternity, even when you're not sharing the gospel. Do I have your attention? 
I thought so. So let me tell you who our teacher this hour is going to be. Jordan Rayner is with us. He is a leading voice of the faith and work movement and best-selling author of Redeeming Your Time. So he writes and he podcasts and he puts out weekly devotionals. And through all of that, he is helping millions of Christians in every country connect the gospel to their work. He also serves as the executive chairman of Threshold 360 and has been selected as a Google Fellow twice and served in the White House under President George W. Bush. Jordan, thank you not only for the gift of this hour, which I cannot return in kind to you, so I'm very aware that you made a choice and you chose to spend it with us, and I do not take that lightly. But thank you also for radically challenging us to have a markedly new perspective on this idea of, quote, secular work. But I got to ask you a couple of questions first. What is a Google Fellow? <laughs> Janet, I think this is our third time talking. It, it is. is the first time I've gotten this question. You know, I if I'm honest, I'm not, I'm still not 100% sure. No, listen, I did two short projects um, with Google. I've spent most of my life as a tech entrepreneur and Google tapped me and a few other people uh, who they thought were doing really innovative things with their technology. And they basically wrote us a check and said, go do even cooler things with this technology. And we're going to give you access to some tools that aren't in the market yet. And it was a really, really great experience. So both stints were really short, uh, but they were pretty remarkable in getting to work with the Google team to make this world more useful with their technology, which mm. I would argue is kind of what we were created to do since Genesis 1. Yeah, absolutely. But I want to point out to my friends, not just anybody get asked to be a Google fellow. So that says so much about who you are. And speaking of who you are, I want to know how you got your fire in your bones about this whole idea of the intersection of faith and work. That has to come from somewhere. Was it was it an academic journey? Was it an experiential one for you? Where does this passion for blending the two together come from? Yeah, it was not academic at all. It was all experiential. So like I said, I've spent 15 years as a tech entrepreneur. I still spend time in that world. I'm executive chairman of a company. And I remember very vividly, Janet, this is probably 10 years ago now. I was exiting my second company. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next professionally. And when you sell two companies, the natural thing is you go, you know, start a third. That was the idea. Uh, but for a hot second there, I was thinking about also planning a church because I remember going to church most Sundays, feeling like I think a lot of our listeners feel on Sundays, like second-class Christians, mm. because we're going to jobs as entrepreneurs and teachers and mechanics rather than moving to a mud hut 5,000 miles away from home to make disciples mm -hmm. or plant a church. And so I was considering these two paths, start another business, start a church. And one Sunday, I had a mentor pull me aside who knew what I was thinking about. And he's like, hey, I heard you're thinking about planting a church. And I'm thinking this guy's going to pat me on the back. Uh, maybe write me a check and I'll never forget it, Janet. He just looks me dead in the eyes. He goes, yeah, I got to be honest. That sounds really dumb for you. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, Jordan, you're a talented entrepreneur. You've served your team and customers and investors with excellence. Why do you think you have to go plant a church to do ministry? Don't you get that your work is mm. ministry? Mm. And I had no idea what he was talking about, Janet, to be totally honest. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. With this conversation in the background of your mind, I want you to go read Genesis 1 and 2. I'm like, read Gen I've read Genesis 1 and 2 500 times. He's like, just do it. And Janet, what I saw 
changed my life forever. I saw that before God tells us that he is holy or loving or omnipotent, he tells us that he is a God who works. Created is literally the first verb in the Bible. And then long before the great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we see the first commission that God hands down to humankind and never, ever retracts to fill the earth and to subdue it, essentially just to make this world more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. And that was radical to me, Jana. I think at the time before that conversation, I understood, as I think a lot of Christians do, that my work had instrumental value, meaning that, sure, I can leverage my job to share the gospel with my coworkers, or I can make a lot of money and write a check to the missionary in my refrigerator. But reading those passages was the first time I understood it had intrinsic value to God. Mm. I want you to define that when we come back, Jordan. You defined instrumental value. So you're learning so much already, friends. Two words take away already. Instrumental value and intrinsic value. This is going to be, I think, when it's all said and done, not only a radical rearrangement of your perspective, but I hope it puts a bounce in your step that you realize that you really are working in a way, in a place that has eternal ramifications. That might just change your job perspective radically. The book is called The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. We're going to continue right after this with great food for thought. Stick around. The truths of the Christian faith are powerfully clear and wonderfully deep, but sometimes we don't fully understand what we believe. That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's truth tool. Know the foundations of faith and reinvigorate your walk with Jesus. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I find this to be an absolutely fascinating topic, and I hope you will as well, which is why I've asked Jordan Rayner to come back and be my guest again. He's a leading voice of the faith and work movement and a best-selling author. He joins us today because his newest book is called The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. And you just taught us two important words, the instrumental value of our work defined as your work matters for eternity because you can leverage it to share the gospel with those you work with. But then you said there's something called intrinsic value. Define that for us, please. Yeah, intrinsic value is basically the inverse of instrumental. And while scripture makes it clear that our work does have instrumental value, it also makes clear that it has intrinsic value to God. Here's how I would define intrinsic value. Your work matters for eternity even when you're not leveraging it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with those you work with. And Janet, my experience, most Christians understand their work as instrumental value. But if that's it, then frankly, most of us are wasting the mm -hmm. vast majority of our lives, right? I mean, how much time does the average Christian spend explicitly walking coworkers through the Romans road, right? 15 minutes, an hour? Okay, 1% of our time matters to God? No. The story of scripture is that a hundred percent of it matters to God. Every Zoom meeting you lead, every student you teach, every Uber you drive, every diaper you change has the potential to be not in vain. 
as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In other words, it has instrumental and intrinsic value to God. Wow. So I want to ask the why question, but I'm going to precede that with another question, which is in undoing some of the knots in our thinking, we have a split opinion in the church, I think, my observation from the peanut stand, that work is more of a curse than it is a blessing. So before we talk about full-time ministry work, let's just go with the subject of work. And that is, why do we think, why do we have that split decision? Do we view work as a blessing or do we view it as a curse if you're going to use the scripture as a foundation for this? Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of Christians do view it as a curse because we don't teach a lot that work existed prior to the fall. Right. Work is cursed because of sin, but is not itself the curse. In fact, work was literally God's first gift to humankind. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God says, let us make mankind in our image. Why? So that they may rule. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And we talk a lot in the churches about the Great Commission today, as we should. But this right here is the first commission that God gives us. And contrary to what a lot of people imply, God never retracts the first commission. I know a lot of people who act like the Great Commission has replaced the first commission. That is not true. God does not need nor desire a plan B. He still delights in watching his children lean into the first commission to work and make this world more beautiful and useful for other image bearers. Mm -hmm. I think your answer presupposes my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So our thinking got cloudy on this, that the only thing that really matters or that which really makes headlines is heaven is when we, quote, fulfill the Great Commission. Obviously, yeah. Romans Road sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where did our thinking get cloudy on this? When did we walk away from the first commission? And it's not an either or, it's a both and, yeah. and we need to understand that. But when did our thinking get cloudy on this, that somehow the only thing that matters intrinsically is when we're leading people to the foot of the cross? Everything else, it's how you fill your time until you go to glory. Uh, such a good question, Janet. I would argue that there are two thick roots that allow this lie to grow, right? And they both popped up around the same time, 200 to 400 years ago in church history, for the first time in church history. The first root is what I call the abridged gospel, which has become the dominant version of Jesus' good news we preach in our churches today. It goes something like this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to save you and me from our sins. And listen, every single word of that statement is true, but that is a terribly incomplete description of the good news that Jesus preached. He, The gospel is not just good news for our souls. It is good news for the cosmos, the material world. And that has profound implications for how we think about the eternal significance of our work. Because if the gospel is simply good news for our souls, then saving souls is the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. So that's the first root of why we think our work only matters when we leverage it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel. I think the second root is this lie that it's this abridged understanding of eternity, not the gospel, but what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. I think most Christians spend more time thinking about a one-week vacation than they do thinking about eternity. I know that was me for a lot of years. And that's a problem, Janet, for a lot of reasons. Because when we fail to think deeply about heaven, we settle for these wishy-washy half-truths about heaven 
that are more informed by culture rather than scripture. And in the book, I'm helping readers replace five of those half-truths with whole truths that vastly expand our vision of God's glory and how 100% of our time matters for eternity, not just the 1% we spend sharing the gospel. Mm. Okay, so you use the phrase, and I'm going to come up to a break, but I want to get into this because it's such a crucial part of the book. So you talk about half-truths and whole-truths. Define the, the definition of that. Again, I want to make sure we're all on the same page with your verbiage. So when you talk about a half-truth, what does that mean? Yeah. So when we get to talk about this after the break, but for example, there's this half-truth running around the church today that Earth is our temporary home. That is not a lie, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said that discernment lies not in discerning what is right and wrong, but what is right and almost right, mm. right? I don't think preachers are preaching lies about heaven from the pulpit, but I do think we're peddling a lot of half-truths that, number one, rob us of our hope for the future, and number two, rob us of our purpose in our work and lives in the present. Wow, that's so crucial. All right, let me come back to some of those half-truths when we return. And I, as I said before, this rock rattled and rolled my perspective as well. And if it did for me, I'm hoping it'll do the same thing for you as well, that you will begin, in the words of Jordan, to understand the sacredness of the secular work that you do. And in this book, he really walks us through ways to make sure that we understand that our job does matter for eternity, even when we're not sharing the gospel. And I think that's crucially important for maturing saints. Jordan Rayner is with us. We're going to take a break and come right back after this. Best-selling author Jordan Rainer is with us. His new book is called The Sacredness of Secular Work. That title shouldn't surprise you because he is a leading voice of the faith and work movement. The subtitle of his book is Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. And I keep punching that subtitle so you'll really begin to understand the primary thesis of Jordan's book and why it's important that you and I understand that work has an eternal significance, even if it is, quote, secular work. So you go into this area, excuse me, in the book about half-truths, which is extremely important. And they're half-truths in that they are true, but there's a comma there and the rest of the sentence isn't finished. So give me a few examples of those. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this one's really fundamental. This half-truth that Earth is our temporary home. And of course, the assumption is that the present heaven where Christ is and the souls of the redeemed are, uh, is our permanent home. Yeah, it's kind of true that earth is our temporary home, but the whole truth of scripture, which Revelation 21 and 22 makes abundantly clear, is that earth is our temporary home until Christ comes back to make all things new, and this earth is our perfect and permanent home. Nobody will spend eternity in heaven. Jesus did not promise to fit us for heaven and live with him there as we sing every Christmas. He promised heaven on earth and to dwell with us here, right? And why does this matter, right? Here's why it matters. There was this brilliant theologian. There is this brilliant theologian named Dr. Miroslav Volf who says, quote, the significance of secular work depends upon the value of creation and the value of creation depends on its final destiny, end quote. And Janet, 
because the final destiny of the earth is redemption rather than destruction, we can be confident that our work with the earth, typing on this MacBook made out of aluminum, architecting parks, building a home and growing a business must have eternal purpose to God because Jesus' blood paid to redeem it all. So that's one of the five half-truths we're debunking in this book, that earth is our temporary home. There's a lot of others. This idea that we're going to mm -hmm. worship for all of eternity, that we are called to wait for Jesus' return and keep watch for it. We could go on and on and on. But this one, that earth is our temporary home, is really foundational to understanding the sacredness of secular work. Well, so let me pick up on this idea of work, because when yeah. we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to get jobs, are we not, yes. in that new earth? So work must be fairly important to the Lord. Oh, my God. <laughs> work's, work's so much more important to God than it is to us. Scripture mentions work more than 800 times. Mm. That's more than every single mention of music, singing, and praise combined. And it matters to him so much that, yeah, eternity— on the new earth is not going to be an eternal vacation, but a perfect vocation free from the curse. Mm -hmm. Revelation 22 does not say we're going to sing, Lord, I lift your name on high forever and ever, or swing in a hammock forever and ever. It says that we will reign forever and ever. Isaiah 65 says this, starting in verse 17, God says, see, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth. My people will build houses and mm -hmm. dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. And if you love your job today, that promise of working free from the curse with the risen Christ should make you ecstatic. And if you hate your job, this promise should give you great hope because there is coming a day when every single one of God's chosen people will long enjoy the work of their hands. But it doesn't just give us hope for the future, Janet. It gives us purpose in the present because the job you're doing today of planting vineyards and building houses and teaching kids is anything but temporal. If you are doing those things with God, empowered by his Holy Spirit, you are quite literally rehearsing something mm. that is eternal. Oh, I love that use of the word rehearsing. It's a great perspective. So you started out talking about the first commission in Genesis, and then you also were talking about Revelation. So there, and then you cited the numbers of times in Scripture there's conversations about work. So that is a theme, it seems to me, that's working its way throughout the Scriptures. But again, I think for far too many of us, work gets divided into two categories. One is somehow it's sanctified and glorified if it's, quote, full-time ministry, however that might be defined, or Somehow it's what we have to do in order to put bread on our table, and I'd really rather not do it. So is this about the the secular job? Is this about not only anticipating the contribution we're making for the future, because this will be all redeemed someday, but is it about the internal transformation that takes place as well? When you were talking, I was thinking about the verse, whatever we do, we do heartily unto the Lord. So whether it's widget yeah. making or serving tables, somehow my goal, yes, I want as many as possible to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but I am to be conformed and transformed to his image. I think God is more interested in changing me first. Yeah. And sometimes that can be done in the workplace. Am I right or wrong on that? You're 100% right. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that God forms Adam 
from the dust mm. and then calls Adam to work with the dust. <laughs> it's this beautiful picture that when we work, right, and we try to make this world more useful for other people, we are also working on ourselves or more accurately, God is working on us and conforming us into his image because he is a working creative God. Wow. So friend, is this starting to change your perspective on your job? I hope so. And all of a sudden now the mundane will have a whole different perspective. Maybe it'll be magnificent now instead of mundane when you realize what God is doing in, for, and through you because of your secular work. The book is called The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. By the way, I have a link to Jordan's website because you can tell he's a man who's really big on resources and encouragement and all of that can be found on his website. Back after this. keep your finger on the pulse of America while listening to the heartbeat of God's Word. On In the Market, we look for God's perspective on current events. Become a partial partner today and keep this Christ-centered program on the air. As a benefit, you'll receive exclusive resources every week prepared just for you. You'll get behind-the-scenes intel from my email to yours. Call 877-JANET58 or go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. We are halfway through, I think, a very important and timely conversation with Jordan Rayner. He's a leading voice of the faith and work movement and best-selling author of Redeeming Your Time. So he has multiple books he's written. He does podcasts. He's got weekly devotionals, and he's helping Christians all around the globe really connect the gospel to their work. He also serves as the executive chairman of Threshold 360. As I noted earlier, he's been selected as a Google Fellow not once but twice and served in my town here of Washington, D.C. in the administration of George W. Bush. His latest book is called The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. So I've punched that subtitle on purpose multiple times. But inquiring minds want to know, what are those four ways your job matters for eternity? Hey, if you're going to put a list in the subtitle, you better answer the question, right, Janet? Right. All right, let's give a high-level overview of each, and of course, we can go deeper uh, wherever you want to. But number one, your work matters for eternity, most fundamentally, because it's a vehicle for bringing God eternal pleasure. Mm. Now, God doesn't need any of us to bring him pleasure. He was perfectly happy without us. But listen to Psalm 37, 23. It says that the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. In other words, God doesn't just delight in watching you give money to your church or walking a coworker through the Romans road, although of course he delights in those things. He delights in everything you do at work today. That spreadsheet you built right before you left the office, that email that you sent in love rather than haste, everything you do in a godly way is an ingredient into the eternal pleasure of your heavenly father. Mm. Number two, your work matters for eternity because it is largely through your work that you earn eternal rewards. We don't talk about this enough in the church today and for a mm -hmm. lot of good reasons. The perverted prosperity gospel has heretically taken this idea of rewards in the wrong direction. Jesus did not promise us our best life now, <laughs> but he did promise us our best life later if 
We will sacrifice for his sake in the present. And I know a lot of believers running around feeling guilty about chasing after eternal rewards like treasures and crowns and increased job responsibilities on the new earth. I would say this gently and humbly to maintain this view that it's wrong to chase after eternal rewards is to bring a pretty serious accusation against Jesus Christ Mm. because he commanded you and I to chase after those rewards over and over and over again. And our work is going to be a primary way that we earn those rewards. Number three, our work matters for eternity because through it, we can scratch off the veil between heaven and earth and reveal glimpses of the kingdom of God in the present. And then finally, number four, your work matters for eternity because you can leverage it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with those that you work with. The Great Commission is far from the only way that our work matters for eternity, but it is a way. The Great Commission is great. It's a non-optional command for every single follower of Jesus. And in the book, I break down the data that suggests that mere Christians working as entrepreneurs and baristas rather than religious professionals are going to be most likely to make disciples of Jesus Christ in this post-Christian context if we get really, really good at doing this work as we work shoulder to shoulder with the lost Monday through Friday. So Janet, mm-hmm. at a high level, those are four ways your job matters for eternity. And I'd be foolish to call that a comprehensive list, right? There's many, many, many more ways But those are four of the most interesting and I think encouraging uh, to me and I hopefully to our listeners as well. Absolutely. And there's so much in each of those. So let me pull out a couple of things just to examine. Let me go to the last one first. So let me put it in real simple parlance, which is if I send that email in love rather than in haste, if I'm not egocentric, uh, thinking that my advance on the job is uh, worth any means whatsoever to get me <laughs> that higher salary, that higher position, even if it means trampling on my coworkers. If uh, I've been disrespectful, if I've been immoral, if I've got a mouth like a sailor, all of those things, let me put in Sunday school language. In other words, if I have a witness for Christ in the job just by the way I'm living out my life, because I realize that my mission field is the ground between my two feet and the way I live this out is going to either repulse or compel the people I work with to say, tell me, there's something different about you. What is it? And eventually, if God allows, the door opens and you can say, well, it's not a what, it's a who. So in other words, the way we live our life becomes a calling card for the Great Commission. And that means working in such a way as to honor and glorify the Lord. So translated, ipso facto, it tells me that every single one of us really is a missionary, whether we thought about it or not. That's exactly right. You know, I, I I would argue that the Great Commission texts in Matthew 28 are some of the most well-known and most least understood or misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek word go is actually what's called an aorist tense passive participle to get really, really nerdy for a second, right? What it means is go is not the command of this verse. A better translation found in the literal standard translation is as you go, make disciples. The going was assumed, right? Mm. Jesus had assumed that his followers had already gone in their jobs as fishermen and tent makers and shepherds, whatever, tax collectors. And he said, hey, as you go about that work, turn men and women into disciples, right? Mm. But Jan, to your point, I think we have such a limited view of evangelism. Mm -hmm. We think evangelism is only walking somebody through the Romans road. Psalm 19 says the stars declare the glory of God, though they pour forth no speech. And so will our love 
So will our hard work. See Colossians 3. So will everything we do at work that makes no sense other than Jesus Christ being in our lives. All of that is evangelism. And yes. all of that can win the respect of outsiders, that Paul said, and earn us opportunities to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Amen. I will never forget, to your point, Jordan, visiting there so many marvelous tombs. That's a terrible thing to put in the same sentence, but it's true, in Westminster yeah. Abbey. And I'll never forget seeing the marker for William Wilberforce. We know he was the great abolitionist leader in the UK, and it was fraught with trials, by the way. And we get a little glimpse of it when we see the movie about his life or read a book about his life. But there were ups as much as there were downs. But it simply states on his grave marker, he lived his life with the eloquence of the gospel. Now, it doesn't say he walked him through the Roman road. It's the fact that he lived it out. You know, it's this idea of preaching if you must use words. So in other yeah. words, if the way I show up, the way I keep my workstation clean, the way I treat my customers, the way in which I respect authority and my boss, all of those things become a calling card for the gospel. A, number one, it's obedience. I should be doing it whether or not there's an outcome or not. Amen. But it might be attractive enough to be used as fishing bait when I'm fishing for men. So there's a mandate there that suddenly rearranges our perspective. You touched oh, on something so else. And I want to touch on this because I, I think you're spot on about the subject of rewards. Um, you know, there, there are many schools of thought. People, Some people are saying, well, I just want the best job in the world. I remember Billy Graham said he wanted to be mayor of Jerusalem. I bet Cliff Farrells wants to be the director of the church choir, too. So, I mean, it kind of all works together. But when you stop and think about it, there are others who think, I got my salvation. I'll stand in the back of the room. I don't care. I've often said, Lord, I know because you came into Jerusalem on a donkey and you're coming back in a horse. There have to be horses. I'd be happy to clean the stables for all of eternity. Yeah. That would be my job. I'd love to be able to do that. But we do get gummed up on this issue of rewards. I, and this is a deep theological point, and I'm so glad you put it in your book. I don't want to do it for the reward. I want to do it out of love and obedience. And if there's a reward, to God be the glory. But I'm not doing it because I want to earn that badge. I'm doing it because I want to be obedient and faithful. Talk to me about this idea of pursuing yeah. rewards. Yeah, I think that's right. And I feel the same way, Janet. Uh, but over time, yeah, the more and more I dig into God's word, I, I think I cite 27 different passages of scripture in the book mm -hmm. where Jesus mm -hmm. commanded us to chase after rewards. I think Jesus understood that we are not reward optional beings. <laughs> we are either going to chase after the temporal rewards of this world and the praise of man or the eternal rewards and the applause of God. We don't, there's no third option. It's got to be one of those two things. And I think it's why he is holding these rewards out to us over and over and over again, because true Christianity is a fight. I think that's another thing we don't get about eternal rewards. We think it's selfish because we fail to recognize that rewards are almost always tied to sacrifice mm. that we make in the present. Hebrews 6.10 says God is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him. In Revelation 22, Jesus said, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Mm. God seems to be suggesting that rewards are repayment for what we sacrifice for his sake in the present. We don't deserve a single thing in this life. Right. We deserve death. And God has given us Christ and so much more. And if we will give up this life, 
for the sake of Christ and his gospel, for the glory of God and the good of others, scripture says we do deserve rewards in the next life. And if I'm honest, Jana, I don't really understand that. I don't understand why God would reward us with anything other than eternal communion with him, but he does. And he commands me to chase after it. And so I think part of obeying Christ is brazenly chasing after those rewards for God's greater glory. Because when he gives me those treasures and he gives me those crowns, I'm going to lay them right back down at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. Wow. Amen. So when we come back, Jordan, keeping in this same vein of conversation, a lot of people have heard of a bucket list, but very few have heard of an anti-bucket list. And you tie this back into this idea of rewards. I'd love for you to explain. By the way, you hear me say this. I'm going to repeat it for the thousandth time, but it's true. When I read a book that has impacted my walk with the Lord, my feeling very strongly is that if it's done it for me, friend, it might do it for you. This is one of those books, and there's so much in it. And even with the gift of one hour of Jordan's time, I can't possibly dive to the bottom. You're just going to have to get the book and read it for yourself. It's fabulous. The Sacredness of Secular Work. Four ways your job matters for eternity, even when you're not sharing the gospel. Jordan Rayner is with us. He's the author of the book, The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. And one of those four ways is this idea of rewards, by the way, that work earns eternal rewards, and we are to pursue them. And Jordan just gave a beautiful biblical defense of that idea of really pursuing these rewards when, in truth, we deserve nothing at all, and he gives us the gift of salvation when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. But the scriptures compel us to seek these rewards. So you talk about an anti-bucket list. I, I loved your use of this phrase when it comes to maximizing our eternal rewards. Talk to me about this. Yeah, and I got to give credit where credit is due. I got this idea from Randy Alcorn, who was kind mm. enough to endorse the book. And, you know, in the introduction to the sacredness of secular work, I promise readers, hey, this book isn't just going to be interesting. It's also going to be helpful, right? And so I'm giving readers 24 practices to make their work matter more for eternity. One of them is building an anti-bucket list because the whole concept of a bucket list is built on some really unbiblical assumptions that the only chance we have to enjoy the best travel, the best food, the best experiences this world has to offer is to enjoy them before we die and kick the bucket. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Hmm. I really believe that is one of Satan's favorite tricks for believers today. And once we replace these half-truths about heaven that we were talking about earlier, we see that we're going to have all eternity to enjoy the best travel experiences and food, et cetera, et cetera. And again, right before the break, we were talking about this. While scripture makes it abundantly clear that our entrance into the kingdom is by grace through faith, period, full stop, the rewards we receive will vary widely based on how we steward this life. And so for that reason, yeah, I think more Christians need to be building anti-bucket lists, these catalogs of things we will strive not to do on this side of eternity so that we can accumulate as many eternal rewards and experiences as possible. Because again, almost every reward scripture promises is tied to sacrifices we make in the present. Let me give one example from my own anti-bucket list to make this concrete, if that's okay, mm. Janet. Please. I love my hometown of Tampa, Florida. But, and you're going to think I'm crazy. My favorite city on earth 
is your city, Washington, <laughs> D.C. I love D.C. My mm-hmm. wife and I fell in love there. I worked at the Bush White House there. So why don't I move my family to D.C.? Well, for a lot of reasons, but mostly because I've got three living grandparents within five minutes of me. Mm-hmm. I've got aging parents. My wife has aging parents, and we feel called by God to be here and help care for them as they get older. Listen, if I'm honest, that's a pretty big sacrifice for me mm-hmm. personally. And if I were living for this life alone, move my family to D.C. would be at the top of my bucket list. But knowing that heaven will ultimately be on earth and that I'm going to have all of eternity to explore the greatest city of all time, this 5,600 mile wide, tall and deep new Jerusalem. I've got no problem putting this on my anti-bucket list Mm -hmm. because Paul tells me in Ephesians 6, 8, that the Lord will reward me for whatever good I do in this life. And does that mean God's going to give me the urban flat I've always dreamed of in the New Jerusalem? I don't know, but here's what I do know. God is faithful and he sees my faithfulness in my work and my life in the present. And whatever that reward looks like in eternity is going to make my sacrifice in the present seem crazy small in retrospect. Mm. Wow. Oh, Jordan, this is such a theologically rich conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So let me take you back to D.C. for a minute. And I bet a lot of people are wondering. So you talk about the sacredness of secular work. For a lot of believers, they hold their nose on anything that has to do with politics. You and I can draw a distinction between politics and public policy. But when you were working under George Bush in the White House, could you sense a sacred nature to the work that you were doing? Uh, No, I I would be lying if I said I could because (laughs) I didn't have this perspective. Here's what I wish somebody had told me when I was working in D.C. I wish somebody had told me that. The meaning of that word secular I threw around all the time and thought I knew. That word secular literally means without God. Mm. But we Christians believe that God is with us wherever we go through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the only thing you need to do to instantly make Washington, D.C. or your neighborhood or your kid's school or your secular workplace sacred is walk through the front door or log on to Zoom, right? Charles Spurgeon once said that, hey, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, quote, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred, end quote. There's no question about the sacredness of the seemingly secular work I did in D.C. or our listeners are doing in Topeka, Kansas. The more Mm -hmm. interesting and life-changing question is how – what are you going to do about the fact that your work is sacred. How are you going to manage the job you currently have to make it matter more for eternity? And that's the question I'm trying to help readers answer in the sacredness of secular work. Wow. So good. Let me go one back to one of the four points, and this is a conversation about the glimpses of the kingdom of God. You talk about scratch-off glimpses. Tell our friends what you mean by that. I'm not talking about gambling. Please don't send me your angry emails. <laughs> All right, so I've got three young daughters, right? And they love this scratch-off paper that leaves black residue all over my house that I'm constantly vacuuming up. (laughs) Listen, when they take a stylus or a quarter and rub it against that black veil, the darkness fades away and reveals a beautiful picture on the other side. Believer, that is a picture of our life today. Through our jobs, we scratch off the darkness of this world and reveal glimpses 
of the eternal kingdom of God on the other side. Wow. Jordan, thank you. There is so much more I'd love to talk to you with about this book, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity to tell my friends, impactful, that's the most important word I can use, radically redefines and redirects your whole perspective on work. The book, again, is called The Sacredness of Secular Work, Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, Even When You're Not Sharing the Gospel. And you heard Jordan say that in this book, he gives you multiple strategies to be able to move toward this change of perspective. And I think you've gotten some big clues in our conversation, but oh, 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 as rich and as fast as that hour went, there is so much more. So check it out on my website, in the market with JanetParshall.org. Click on the red box that says program details and audio. Takes you to the information page. There's a great picture of Jordan smiling, a link to his website. And on the right-hand side, there's the cover of the book, black and white, peeled back to reveal vibrant color. Perfect illustration of a change in perspective and what we're going to experience in the new heaven and the new earth, which will include, let the record reflect your honor, work. Thank you, Jordan, so much for a fabulous conversation. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.